Our scripture today is John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. Hear the word of God. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, he is declaring something, announcing something that is wonderfully surprising and that is meant to be life-changing, but we might not be able to hear it. We might not be able to hear it because... For one thing, we live in a culture that has like mastered the art of minimizing sin and making light of sin. We might think, yeah, sin's not great, but neither is broccoli. So what's the big deal? <laughs> and second, we might not be able to hear it because uh, the notion that a lamb could take away the sin of the world, whatever that is, just sounds really odd and weird. And so, uh, so that we can try to hear the goodness of what John is saying, I just want to ask, like, what's going on with sin and what's up with the lamb? What's going on with sin and what's up with the lamb? The term that John uses here for sin is hamartia in Greek, and it's a word that had a usage um, that wasn't a religious usage. It just means like missing the mark or not hitting the target or uh, like not fulfilling a goal. When it's applied to sin, we might ask, well, what is the goal, right? Well, from a biblical perspective, God desires something for his creation. And that something has a name. It's, this is a word we've talked about before, shalom. It's this, um, we translate it as peace but it's a word that uh, is much more than the absence of conflict. It's like this beautiful webbing together of God and humanity and the rest of creation and justice and love and delight. It's a word that means universal flourishing. It's a word for the way things are supposed to be, shalom. Uh, and um, we don't fulfill the goal. Like, we miss the mark. We... We get off target. We mess it up. We get off track. Like, we spoil shalom. Uh, in other words, we sin. That's what sin is about. The way that we do this always has to do with our loves. Like, we fail to love God 
as we ought to love God, and we fail to love other people as we ought to love other people, which is, is kind of a way of just saying, like, we don't treat God as God ought to be treated, and we don't treat people as they ought to be treated. And um, there's a lot of overlap there. Like, you can actually, um, you, you can, how, how to put this best, like, failure to love people is never merely a failure to love people, but always a failure to love God whose image those people bear. Um, sin always has a Godward dimension. Sin is always primarily, first and foremost, against God. Now, what gets really tricky is that uh, sometimes we're aware of our failures to love, but a lot of times we're not. A lot of times our sin is hidden from us, like we're blind to it or we deceive ourselves about it. Sometimes we think we're hitting the mark just fine. Sometimes we think we're, um, we're hitting the target when in reality we're like way, way off. John Ortberg writes this. He says, one of the worst things about sin is that it carries with it a certain moral myopia, a nearsightedness. It distorts our ability to detect its presence. He shares a story about a plantation owner named James Hammond, who was the governor of South Carolina and then a U.S. senator uh, leading up to the Civil War. And Ortberg writes this about James Hammond. In 1839, he purchased an 18-year-old slave named Sally and her infant daughter, Louisa. He made Sally his concubine and fathered several children by her. Then when Louisa reached the age of 12, he installed her in her mother's old role and fathered several more children. His political career was halted, but only temporarily when his wealthy brother-in-law, Wade Hamilton, threatened to reveal publicly that Hammond had been abusing Hamilton's four daughters, aged 13 to 18. Ortberg writes, most remar remarkable though are the reflections Hammond made in his diary when his wife left him and when epidemics took the lives of many of his slaves and livestock whom he lumped together in the same category. So listen to this excerpt from his diary. He writes, it crushes me to the earth to see everything of mine so blasted around me, slaves, cattle, mules, hogs, everything that has life around me seems to labor under some faded malediction. Great God, what have I done? Never was a man so cursed. What have I done or omitted to do to deserve this fate? Just doesn't see it. Uh, like he thinks his life has been right on target. As far as he can tell, he hasn't missed the mark. And we say, well, we're not moral monsters. We don't own slaves. But, but let's, let's acknowledge that as far as it goes, but then really ask, like, what about us? Like, one of the effects of sin in our lives is that um, it brings into our hearts the same capacity for self-deception. We can get so used to sin that it just feels normal. We can lie and manipulate. We can ignore injustice and human need for so long that the moral warning lights just kind of stop going off, or they are, they're going off, but we've just gotten so used to them that we don't even notice them as warning lights. 
which suggests that sin goes way deeper than just attitudes and actions, that, that sin is like this spiritual power that can enslave us, that can get its grip on us, and that can blind us even to its own presence. See, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and it's, it's a really big problem. Um, sin, one way to think about sin is that sin is the spoiling of shalom. It's the spoiling of shalom. It alienates us from God, and it alienates us from one another. It leads to ruin in our relationships and ruin in our very selves. It just tears apart God's good creation. And, and so you see, it's like, it's way worse than broccoli. I mean, broccoli can continue on and the world can be just fine. Um, but if sin is left unchecked, it's not an exaggeration to say that there's no hope for the world. Uh, if God's world is ever to be a place of beauty and flourishing and delight, sin has to be dealt with. If the world is ever to have real justice and peace, sin has to be dealt with. If the world is ever to be healed and whole, if if shalom is ever to be restored, like someone has to deal with sin. And all of our attempts to deal with it fail. Like they fail over and over again. We can relativize sin and we can minimize sin. Uh, we can make light of it. We can make jokes about it. We can pretend that it isn't real. We can get um, really good at pointing it out, usually in other people, usually on social media, usually passive-aggressively. We can do that in sermons sometimes. But what we can't seem to do is get rid of it. We can't remove it. And then John the Baptist comes along and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what's up with the Lamb? What's up with the Lamb? You know, in the end of the Gospel of John, and if we stick to this schedule that I've kind of mapped out, we're going to get there uh, in Holy Week. John wants us to see that Jesus is crucified right when thousands of lambs are being slaughtered in the temple for Passover. You remember what Passover is about. Passover is the celebration and meal that commem commemorated like the defining moment in Israel's history, their exodus out of Egypt. Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were in bondage. And then through Moses, God tried to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh wouldn't listen. And so finally, God comes down in justice, and he comes down to put sin in check. And what's so interesting, remember when you read the story, is that God does not say, like, I've made my list, and I've checked it twice, and I'm only bringing justice for the naughty people, and I'm going to spare all the nice people. Like, he doesn't say to Moses, I'm only going to bring my justice against Pharaoh, or against guys like James Hammond. So don't worry, y'all will be fine. And why doesn't he say that? Because God's justice is true justice. Because God is opposed to anything and everything that spoils shalom. Like, he is dead set against sin wherever it is found. And, 
And maybe we should pause there and just remind ourselves, like, get clear on why. Why is God opposed to sin? Like, sometimes, I don't know what you think about that. I think, I think sometimes the impression the church gives the world, maybe, is that God is opposed to sin just because God is kind of grumpy or God hates joy um, or, or something. But, like, no, God is opposed to sin because God is so for us. He's so for his world. He's so full of love for his creation that he wants to bring to an end anything that threatens us, anything that threatens his good creation. Um, God is, and so God is against sin. God, I mean, we could even say that God can't stand sin, but he can't stand it in the sense that he can't stand what it does to us. He can't stand seeing us suffer under sin. And so he's opposed to it wherever it's found, and God knows better than any of us that we miss the mark, that our lives go off course, that they don't fulfill the goal of shalom, that um, the whole world misses the mark. And so in light of God's justice, like, it doesn't matter what country you're from, or it doesn't matter how good a life you've lived, it doesn't matter like how much scripture you've memorized or how many small groups you've led or how many homeless people you've helped or how many refugees you've welcomed or how intentionally you've attempted to cultivate virtue and eliminate vice from your life. God's justice is perfect justice and so it comes against sin wherever it's found in the Egyptians and in the Israelites in, in guys like James Hammond and in people like you and me. But you remember the story, God does make a provision for salvation. Uh, he says to Moses, the only way for you and your people to survive this night of perfect justice is if you kill a lamb and take the lamb's blood and put it up over the doorposts of your home. Let's just acknowledge like that's really weird. That's weird. Like, God's holy justice is coming down, and it's coming down on everyone, against sin, wherever it's found, and God says, oh, but here's a way that you can survive. You kill a lamb, and you smear blood on your house. It's like our performance and pedigree, however good or bad, however impressive or ordinary, simply irrelevant. There's only one thing that makes a difference in the story, and it's the lamb. Uh, and so what happens? God's holy justice does come down, and uh, every firstborn son in every home dies unless that home is marked by the blood of the lamb. And if it is marked by the blood, God's justice passes over it. So in every home in Egypt, there's either a dead son or there's a dead lamb. It's one or the other, which is an amazing story, and it's a disturbing story, and it raises all kinds of questions, um, like a son or a lamb. One of the questions it raises is like, what's up with the lamb? Like, how can the blood of a lamb save a person? 
How can a lamb be a substitute? How does sacrificing a lamb and putting its blood on the doorpost deal with the problem of sin? And, and how does that bring justice? And, and what's so special about a lamb's blood? And why, like, how does that possibly help? How does that do anything? And the answer that the Bible seems to give elsewhere is this. It doesn't. It doesn't. Like, the blood of an animal isn't what saves people. When we get to the New Testament and we go to the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us what we already kind of are guessing at intuitively when he tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's like it doesn't actually deal with the problem of sin. The blood of an animal uh, doesn't take care of this. Which means that the blood and, and the, like everything that's happening there in the Passover is like a sign or a symbol. or it's, it's wanting to point our attention to something else or someone else. In other words, the blood on the doorpost is doing the same thing that John the Baptist is doing when he points. And when he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He looks at Jesus, and he calls Jesus a lamb. Why does he do that? I mean, he does that for one thing because he has in his mind uh, this story of the Passover from Exodus. But he also does it because hundreds of years earlier, uh, the prophet Isaiah did the same thing. Isaiah foretold the coming of a suffering servant. And listen to what he says about him. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Family, every time that we come to this table, we can hear Jesus saying, that's me, that suffering servant, that lamb who is slain, that's me. All the Passover lambs are pointing to Jesus. Here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Joshua Ryan Butler, um, he shares a vision. I think I shared this with you years ago, but... Um, thought it would be fitting to share again. He shares a vision of an artist painting a picture, a masterpiece, and he writes this. He says, with lavish brush strokes and bold strikes, the artist threw splashes of rich, beautiful color, pouring himself into his painting with a passion on a large wall-side canvas bordered by an ornate gold frame. When the masterpiece was complete, he stood back and gazed with joy upon the wonder his hands had made as if to say, it is good. Something strange, however, happened next. A small, start, dark spot appeared in the center of the painting. I thought, what is that? The artist watched as the mold-like decay began to spread like a crack in the windshield that starts at a at a point, but gradually expands its fissures and fractures into the hole. 
the invasive intruder began to stretch its thin, straggly arms, creeping its corruption throughout the canvas. The masterpiece was threatened with destruction. What happened next was the strangest, most bizarre thing I would ever have expected. The artist lifted his leg, extended it forward, and stepped into the painting. First his leg entered the canvas, then his torso, and finally his head. Then, with a whoosh, the integration was complete. The artist stood within his work his hands had made at the center of the masterpiece. Strange, but even stranger was what happened next. The moldy rot began to attack the artist. The great painter had positioned himself in such a way that the central point of invasion was right over his heart. As the tentacles retreated from the cornered edges, they sank into the artist himself, blow by blow. The creator received the corruption at the core of his masterpiece until finally it was gone. The masterpiece was restored. The artist had absorbed the destructive power until it was extinguished. To my surprise, however, the great painter didn't step back out of his painting. Having united his life with the canvas, he remained permanently at the center of his restored masterpiece. In a way, however, restored doesn't seem like the right word because the work was now even more glorious with the artist's presence inside. He brought radiance and beauty such that the painting seemed to glow with his life. There was a sense that this was always the way it was intended to be, the artist at the center of his painting. And so we remember that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we remember that when we get to the end of the Bible story, John sees a slain lamb, very much alive, standing in the very heart of the throne room of God. And he writes, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's like John has a vision of the world made right and the world loving God as it's supposed to, as it's intended to. It's, it's a vision of the world from which sin has been removed, taken away, removed maybe as far as the east is from the west. Family, this is God's love for you and me. This is his love for a world that has fallen into sin and ruin, that he takes the world's sin and your sin and my sin, and he takes it onto himself and into himself, and he bears it, and he bears it away. That's a gift for us as we begin 2023. I think that it's safe to say that in countless ways, certainly all kinds of little ways, you and I are going to miss the mark this year. Yeah. <laughs> like even little Eden is going to sin. <laughs> we're going to sin. Like we're going to fail to love each other well. We're going to fail to love God well. We're going to fail to treat people and God 
as they deserve to be treated in all kinds of little ways. And, and probably in some big ways, some of us are going to like really screw up. We're going to miss the mark. We're going to go off track. We're, not, we're, gonna, we're actually going to work against shalom instead of for it. Um, and, and we might do that unintentionally, and we might do that just because we're blind to our sin, because we don't see it, because we're not aware of it, because we've, we've like fallen into like habits of sin that we just don't even see. Um, and there is one who has committed himself to dealing with that and taking care of it. Um, it it's not in a way that frees you from responsibility, but in a way that is totally for you. God is totally for you. He's committed to removing your sin from you. Um, it's not going to be too long before we're turning on TVs and reading papers and just like going through what I anticipate being like a horrible election cycle. And uh, we're going to see things said and things done um, that, like, fill us with rage. Um, we're going to see the sin of others on display. And the temptation for all of us will be to behold it. To behold the sin of others. To highlight it. To point it out. To think that we're a little bit superior because our sin doesn't look quite like their sin. And family, what a gift at the beginning of 2023 to see that there's, there is a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Their sin just as much as ours. Jesus loves them as much as he loves you and me. He's committed to healing them as much as he's committed to healing us. It's a gift to know that we're not the ones who have to fix them. We're not the ones who have to fix the world. There's an invitation in, in our passage from John not to behold our sin and not to behold the sins of others, but to behold the Lamb to fix our gaze on him. I wonder if you'll do that this year. I wonder if you'll do it right now. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.